Ads, schmads. If you don't want ads, that's okay. Choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts. And hey, presto, no ads. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? Hope all is well and you're enjoying the Christmas. We have a special, a very special conversation for you now, which is a conversation I had during the year with Naomi Klein. Naomi Klein, probably known to you as a very brilliant political activist from the left-hand side of the camp, Canadian has written probably one of the most formative books written, certainly when I was a young fellow, it was called No Logo. We have a bizarre interview copy of me and Naomi Klein when we looked like two children uh, back from the early, late 1990s, John, it was actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I sat down with her at the RDS on her new book, Doppelganger, an excellent book. We had a fantastic conversation, went around the houses, very wide ranging, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So sit back. Chill out and listen to myself and Naomi Klein having the bants in the RDS from last September. While you're eating your mince pies. While you're eating your mince pies, exactly. my defense. It was never my intent to write this book. I did not have time, no one asked me to, and several people strongly cautioned against it. Not now, not with the literal and figurative fires roiling our planet, and certainly not about this. Other Naomi. That is how I refer to her now. This person with whom I have been chronically confused for over a decade, my doppelganger, a person whom so many others appear to find indistinguishable from me, a person who does many extreme things that cause strangers to chastise me or thank me or express their pity for me. The very fact that I refer to her with any kind of code speaks to the absurdity of my situation. For a quarter of a century, I have been a person who writes about corporate power and its ravages, 
I sneak into abusive factories in faraway countries and across borders to military occupations. I report in the aftermath of oil spills and Category 5 hurricanes. I write books of big ideas about serious subjects. And yet, in the months and years during which this text came into being, a time when cemeteries ran out of space and billionaires blasted themselves into outer space, everything else that I had to write or might have written appeared only as an unwanted intrusion, a rude interruption. In June 2021, as this project began to truly spiral out of my control, a strange new weather event called a heat dome descended on the southern coast of British Columbia, the part of Canada where I now live with my family. The thick air felt like a snarling invasive entity with malevolent intent. More than 600 people died, most of them elderly. An estimated 10 billion marine creatures were cooked alive on our shores. An entire town went up in flames. Now, it's rare for this out-of-the-way, sparsely populated spot to make international headlines, but the heat dome made us briefly famous. An editor in New York called and asked if I, as someone engaged in the climate fight for 15 years, would file a report about what it was like to live through this unprecedented climate event. I'm working on something else, I told him, the stench of death filling my nostrils. Can I ask what? You cannot. There were plenty of other important thing that, things that I neglected during this time of feverish subterfuge. That summer, I allowed my nine-year-old to spend so many hours watching a gory nature series called Animal Fight Club that he began to ram me at my desk like a great white shark. I engaged in all of this neglect so that I could, what? Check her serially suspended Twitter account, study her appearances on Steve Bannon's live streams for insights into their electric chemistry, read or listen to yet another of her warnings that basic health measures were actually a covert plot orchestrated by the Chinese Communist Party, Bill Gates, Anthony Fauci, and the World Economic Forum to sow mass death on such a scale it could only be the work of the devil himself. My deepest shame rests with the unspeakable number of podcasts I mainlined, the sheer volume of hours I will never get back, a master's degree worth of hours. One night, I whimpered into my best friend's voicemail that I feel closer to the hosts of conspirituality than I do to you. I told myself I had no choice, that this was not, in fact, an epically frivolous and narcissistic waste of my compressed writing time or of the compressed time on the clock of, the fast warming, of our fast-warming planet. I rationalized that other Naomi, as one of the most effective creators and disseminators of misinformation and disinformation about many of our most urgent crises, and as someone who has seemingly inspired large numbers to take to the streets in rebellion against an almost wholly hallucinated tyranny, is at the nexus of several forces that, while ridiculous in the extreme, are nonetheless important, 
since the confusion they sow and the oxygen they absorb increasingly stand in the way of pretty much anything helpful or healthful that we humans might decide at some point to do together. Thank you. Uh, listening to you there, I mean, bizarrely, you and I first did an interview many, many years ago, looking ridiculously young on TV, the <laughs> pair of us. But I've been, you know, watching your career, reading your stuff, watching your documentaries, reading the books, following your activism. I did not expect this book <laughs> at all. Explain to me, you were talking about mm. there at the beginning, but the genesis yeah. of the book, you in COVID, the doppelganger, the, the whole framing. Mm, yeah. So, um, this book came out of a feeling of speechlessness. It came out of feeling like I couldn't write another typical Naomi Klein book. I, I was feeling, frankly, depressed politically. And for me, writing and mental health are very tied. Um, so when I found that I just didn't want to write anything at a certain point, I was kind of panicked. Um, and it had to do with a variety of, of um, you know, it had less to do with COVID and isolation and more to do with that moment when I think a lot of us realized that COVID was not going to be the kind of wake-up call that maybe we hoped that it would be in the early days. You know, in the, in the first, I'd say, eight months of, of, of COVID, I was really involved in all kinds of political organizing. Um, we made a short film with Molly Crabapple, Message from the Future to the Years of Care and Repair, and it was really trying to envision a way that we might learn the lessons of the, that the virus brought to us so brutally in terms of who was treated as sacrificial, though called uh, essential, the way COVID lit up our connections with one another, challenged the myth of individualism. And, um, but even things like how much we value time in nature, how much we kind of valued time with each other, didn't miss shopping. Um, and, you know, you remember those days, right? When we were thinking, maybe, maybe we'll change. Maybe we won't just rebound to the crisis called normal. Passing around an article by Arundhati Roy, the pandemic is a portal, thinking about what, what we might bring with us. And so, you know, a lot of that hope was also bound up in the racial justice uprisings of the, that first COVID spring and summer and the fact that these were the largest protests in, in American history. And it was just extraordinary. I was still yeah, living in the absolutely. States at the time. You were living in New Jersey. I was living in New Jersey. And it was like, you know, I, it was a kind of quiet neighborhood and nobody had been on the streets except for going for like those daily walks, Right. And then all of a sudden, the streets were full of everybody. And they were showing up for their Black neighbors and for our Black neighbors. And, and 
it was like the opposite of every zombie movie plot um, where, you know, the apocalypse hits and people come out of their homes to eat each other's brains, except for <laughs> there was an apocalypse and we were coming out of our homes to just be in solidarity with each other um, and try to kind of excavate the true stories of our nation's past. And so I was part of all these kind of projects yep. that were thinking, well, how do we how do we internalize these lessons? How do we come out of this in a way that brings us a Green New Deal and, and racial justice and economic justice and a green economy. And then it just became clear that that was not going to happen for a variety of reasons. And so that left me feeling profoundly depressed. So that's, you know, now we're entering into 2021. And so I decided to go back to school and get a writing teacher. Um, because on. I thought, well, I swear, because I thought if I can't get excited about form again, if I can't get excited about content, if I can't be the cheerleader and say, we're, we're really going to do it this time, maybe I can get excited about form, you know, and kind of remember and style, what, and, style yeah, and why yeah. I wanted to be a writer in the first place. So I, I started working with a creative writing teacher, did all these exercises and just all kinds of different forms, okay. short story, all, all kinds of things. But there's also a hell of a lot of literature in here. And there's yeah. a lot of references. Well, that, well, in so the... we, were, we were reading all kinds of, I mean, that's the thing about writing, a writing classes. It's mostly about reading uh, other writers. And, but while this was happening, I would go online and I would constantly get um, confused with Naomi Wolf, my doppelganger. And, Who we will talk about. And, and it was kind of surreal because... I would go online for some sort of simulation of the friends and community and political movements that I missed. And instead, I would just get inundated with all of these identity confusion events. And then it struck me that that was a really interesting literary device yeah. to get into the kind of uncanniness of the whole COVID period. Because, of course, there's nothing more uncanny than having a doppelganger and sort of losing control over your identity. It's why it's such a through line through literature. And so, you know, the book is not about her, but it does no. use her. She is the white rabbit leading me down the rabbit hole into conspiracy culture. And then we do some mapping to try to figure out what the hell is going on yeah. with all the weirdness. <laughs> well, the, I mean, the weirdness, I mean, there's, there's, there's no Sorry. absence of weirdness in the book. Mm. There's no absence of weirdness. But I, I want to bring you back to that, that COVID period. Yeah. Uh, what was going on, you think, in people's heads? Because I, I don't think I, I'm alone or anybody in the room. I have a lot of friends, even maybe some family, close people who during this period began to go down rabbit holes, mm -hmm. began to entertain ideas that there was nothing in their previous behavior that suggested they were going this way. Yeah. What Before we get into the, what do you think was going on in, in people's lives? Mm -hmm. and you've, you've, you've written quite quite extensively about this in the book, you yeah. know, about COVID and what it did to people. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's one answer um, for what drove people to these changes. And I mean, and this is the thing about Wolf, just to back up a bit. So she, um, those of you who are not familiar with who this person is that we're referring to, she, she was um, a very prominent feminist. Um, she came to... Um, sort of international renown with her first book called The Beauty Myth that came out at the beginning of the 90s. She was really the most kind of visible face of what was called third wave feminism. Um, not radical feminism, a very kind of mainstream sort of Sheryl Sandberg-ish kind of mm -hmm. feminism. But it had a big impact. And she also was 
an advisor to Al Gore and very much in, you know, in the sort of political consultant scene for, for that, for the party, for the Democratic Party. And now she has become a kind of doppelganger of herself. So she now is on Steve Bannon's show almost daily. Sometimes she um, is also, um, you know, was a regular on Tucker Carlson's show when he still had one. Um, she takes pictures of her gun, talks a lot about guns, um, talks a lot about civil war on the border, things like that. So it's pretty shocking for somebody that prominent of a feminist and liberal to be that, to be this kind of crossover star on the far right. And she's not the only one. There are quite, um, you know, there, there's not a lot, but there's a significant group of people who have made this um, migration uh, during the COVID years. And then there's lots of, you know, here I'm talking, there I'm talking about prominent people, right? Yeah. Like people who we may, we might've heard of. And you know, I'm sure you're making a list in your, in your, in your minds. But then there's also like the uncle, the brother, the, yeah, yeah. you know, the yoga teacher who's suddenly talking QAnon. And, and, you know, since this book's come out, I've had so many of these conversations with um, yoga teachers, with with it's it's there, but there is a great yoga yeah. teacher moment where you're campaigning for your husband. We'll talk about that in a second. Yes. and you're like, really? So we'll talk about yoga teachers yeah, in a yeah, second. No, so 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 what is the motivation? Um, what is so? I think there's different motivations depending on whether we're talking about a real influencer in this world, like somebody who is monetizing the attention that they're getting by moving over to these platforms. And I think that those motivations are very particular. I, but then there's all the people who are following them. Yeah. And that is, I think, a more troubling question and more complicated question of like, why is it that so many people are believing this idea, these ideas that are not founded in fact, but they're capturing a feeling um, that is very understandable and very recognizable to me about suspicion of elite power. They have, they have a very, very <clears throat> strong sense that elites are... Uh, making out like bandits are which, keeping which things, would not which, be wrong. Is, which is true. And, you know, so I say in the book that they often, they, that they often get the facts wrong, but the feelings right. Yeah. So, which is a great expression because it's, it's actually what, what we're talking about. It's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a, it's a notion or a feeling or yeah. a sense. Now, can I just talk to you a bit yeah. about, you know, when, when you and I first spoke, it was about 22 years ago. When I look at that now, I found it, and I put it up on Twitter because I found it somewhere. And when I look at, at that discussion, it's before smartphones, mm -hmm. it's before Twitter, mm -hmm. it's before Facebook, it's before social media. It, it's almost like ancient history. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like the two of us were there talking away. We're, yeah, I was into you know, but no logo. But but the the mechanism and the platforms that we were talking on was official television. Mm -hmm. You know, of which yeah. there were two stations or three stations here. Yeah, yeah. Let's tease that out, the, the, the notion that this thing in our pockets mm -hmm. has changed the world. Yeah, yeah. Um, I will come back to that. But, there, you know, the, the other thing that I think is significant, though... That okay, fair enough. We were, <laughs> I thought it was a great question. <laughs> no, but what I, we were talking about, right? Yeah. We were talking about um, these movements that were exploding yeah. uh, in the early 2000s. Um, you know, you were asking me about Bono and there were all these huge, you know, there, yeah. there were protesters outside, left-wing, large numbers of left-wing young protesters outside of meetings of the G8, outside of the World Bank, outside of the IMF, the World Trade Organization, with an anti-corporate, anti-capitalist, I would argue, yeah. systemic critique 
Um, and this is, this is the kind of doppelganger that I am most concerned about, not the individual doppelgangers, but the way in which the far right is taking elements of that yes. critique and creating yes. a kind of warped mirror doppelganger of what that left yeah. used to be. And, you know, if you look at a figure like Giorgia Malone, for instance, in Italy, she's, she, you know, she, she mixes and matches a, you know, critique of globalism, international banks, um, code word for Jews, um, but a feeling that, you know, you don't want to just be a consumer slave, to use her words. And then she, and then she flips it and it's about, you know, it's about the immigrants, it's about trans people, it's yeah. about I am a woman, I am Italian, I'm a Christian. But she's absorbing that critique. And yeah. for me, as somebody who's been part of those movements my whole life is, well, where are we on those issues? Like, why are these issues available to be picked up to them? Now, the smartphone may be yeah. part of it, I don't okay. know, you know. But, but certainly, that was a big part of the reason why I wanted to write the book, was that, my, was that you know, I wanted to come back to... What, the, what this technology has unleashed and enabled in terms of our ability to create doubles and doppelgangers of ourselves, right? Like, who are we when we make an avatar of ourselves and uh, online, and that represents us to the world? Um, is that us, or is that is that a commodity version of us? And and are we confused about that for ourselves, but also for each other? Like, if I see your avatar. Do I think that is a human? Or am I sure that is a human? Are you sure? Yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and and it, you know, I think part of the reason why there's so much cruelty online is I'm, I think we're not quite sure each other are human when we're performing branded versions of ourselves. Of ourselves. Yeah. Are, are we like are the the thing we like to project to people? You, yeah. You, and then you add AI, and then we're genuinely unsure. Well, that's where we're going. That's a, that's yeah, exactly. a different. Com- but actually, let's let's go back to that that point because you're absolutely right. Like 20, 20 years ago, the Anti, let's say, big pharma. Mm-hmm. Okay, that was a an issue of the left. Yes, absolutely an issue of the left. It was the center. Of it was a, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it was repealing the WTO's intellectual property rights on AIDS medications. What What do you think has happened over the last, let's say, five or ten years, so that that message, which is a very galvanizing message, mm-hmm. and it's a very simple message to understand, and it's a very clear message, has been taken by the far right as one of their... I'm just giving that as one example. What do you think has happened to the left Mm. and to the society? So this is what I'm trying to figure out. Like, what happened to that critique? Because in the early... You know, this is why it... it, Like, I I really want to resist the sort of one-to-one equation that it's the same. It has changed, right? Um, The movements that we're talking about were pretty wonky, <laughs> you yes. know, they, yeah. you know, read the trade agreements and they understood that there were, there were rules within the world, you know, these obscure trade agreements that were preventing generic drugs from reaching people whose lives could be saved by them. And there was incredible activism, much of it coming from the global South that was calling for, you know, a repeal of TRIPS is the part of the World Trade Organization agreement that deals with intellectual property rights. So it was not just a wail against big pharma. Like, it no, actually it was... had demands that, um, 
you know, I think would materially save lives. And in some cases, you know, exceptions were one and, and generics were able to reach people and a lot of lives actually were saved because of some really heroic activism, um, particularly like the Treatment Action Coalition out of South Africa, for instance. Um, Steve Bannon, as a sort of... Yes, by the, by the way, I, because of Naomi, I have now the last week been watching War Room Balance thing and it's action. It's compulsive. Mm, yeah. It's compulsive. Let's talk balance because balance is a central yeah. figure in this whole business. Sure. And also because the business is extremely serious. We're kind yeah. of feeling a bit flippant, but this is the emerging political movement of our age. It is. And we have and to when, take you know, it very you, seriously. And, 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 you know, there is, it, it may have taken a little bit longer to come to Ireland than than it did to other countries, but it is global, and you start seeing these very very similar echoes. Like when I was uh, uh, watching some footage from from what happened outside the doll last week, very recognizable to me from all of this research. Very similar slogans. Um, you know, it's described as incoherent. I think there's some ver- some identifiable threads and and ideologies that if we if we look closely we can see them about uh, sort of superior bodies and beings and a hierarchy of life that runs through you know, appeals to the natural um, the, na- the a, a kind of toxic nostalgia for the family for the nation um, and we've been dealing with this yeah. in Canada. We've been seeing it in New Zealand with the truckers' convoy. It's global because they're listening to the same shows. And one of the shows they're <laughs> listening to is Steve Bannon's War Room. And it's important to understand that he is not just a U.S. political figure. Yet you know, when he left the White House or was kicked out of the White House, he immediately set out to build what he calls, you know, a populist international, um, or some people might call like a international fascist alliance. Um, and he is weaving together far-right parties from around the world. When Giorgia Malone came to power in Italy, he was like a proud papa. Like the, she's one of his early yeah. members of the coalition, her party, Fratelli d'Italia. Um, <clears throat> so the thing to understand about Bannon is he is a political strategist who is very, very serious about power. And, one of, and his skill as a strategist is identifying the issues that his opponents have left unattended. Um, and, and that people really do care about. So in 2016, a, a big part of the way he got Trump into the White House was by convincing Trump to start talking about free trade deals, the very trade deals mm-hmm. that we were protesting. Exactly. You know? You know. Um, and because, precisely because the Democratic Party had promised and broken its promise again and again to address these trade deals. And so then along comes Trump and he says, I'm going to be the guy who's going to renegotiate them. Um, so he is now doing that with a whole host of other issues. Like and he's harnessing the very real and legitimate rage at big pharma that is not just about the vaccines, that is also about the opioid ec- epidemic, is also about drug prices, is also, um, you know, just about you know, a, a feeling that um, a medical industry is more interested in selling you drugs and actually keeping you healthy and all of that. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, he, but he is not, he has no solutions for that. It just immediately pivots. I mean, the, the only solution yeah. is, is just don't get vaccinated. But and there isn't actually a policy solution he's engaging in. He has no interest in challenging the intellectual property uh, um, you know, provisions. He has no plans for taking on big tech. He just wants to start his own tech platforms and compete with them. 
but he, but he's what he's doing. And I remember, you know, we we had we had Bernie Sanders not here, but down the road a couple a couple of years back. Mm. And I want to talk to you about Bernie's campaign as well. But you know, Bernie was making the point that the left behinds mm-hmm. used to be his people. They were Bernie's people. They're the people that the left. He says, now the left behinds, the people for whom globalization, the people for whom automation, the people who find it very difficult to make a living and have a stake and have a say and get heard, they're gravitating naturally towards the likes of Bannon. And this is why the movement but, but, is... But Bannon did not want to run Trump against Bernie. He says that very openly. Because... Was he, scared? he was scared of Bernie. Yeah, because, because Trump is a counterfeit populist. <clears throat> I mean, look at him. Um, and all these, all these multimillionaires and billionaires, I mean, Rupert Murdoch railing against the elites, right? Did you see that? Last um, week. Steve Bannon, do you, I mean, or, or did you see, did you see Elon Musk in his cowboy hat at the border? Um, no, no it's, I didn't. I'm, I actually spared myself. That, like, he, I think he went image. yesterday. Um, so, so, you know, when these fake populists, um, who are really just using conspiracy as a kind of distraction machine to keep attention away from them, to keep to keep the attention away from the systems that allowed them to become as rich as they are. Um, of course, they want you know people chasing their tails and conspiracies and not actually looking at the systems. Um, but if you run, if you actually have somebody who is running on a platform of universal health care and raising you know, the minimum wage to be a living wage and actually taking on big pharma and lowering drug prices, which was what Bernie talks about, it's kryptonite for them. It really it reveals yeah. them to yeah. be the frauds that they are. So Bannon does, wants nothing to do um, with Bernie. It's, it's actually why, you, you know, I'm sure maybe you've seen, I, I, I'm sh- you know, I, Maybe maybe you're not following U.S. politics this closely, and God bless you if you're not. But <laughs> there's there, been this, there are some real obsessives in this country about U.S. politics. There's been this little war over the last couple of days over between Trump and Biden about who's more pro auto workers union. Have you seen some of this? But that is because the leader of the the auto workers union is a Bernie type figure. His name is his name is um, Sean Payne. Um, I'm probably Irish. I mean, yeah. The only, the only problem is, so is Bannon. He's 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 fantastic. We never own Bannon, but he is. <laughs> well, <laughs> this listen, is, this is the yeah. this is one of the, be, the the most fiery labor leader the U.S. labor movement has had in 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 many decades. He ran as an insurgent candidate to to be the leader of the most powerful private sector union and won wow. against the against the the incumbent. And he is is out there in, in the news now. And they're fighting over him. Doing real, real ec- left economic populism and they all just want to get next to him. Yeah. So that's, that says something, I think, about how you fight this stuff. No, 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 no absolutely. You, you go back to the core yeah. issues, the yeah. issues that mean... Yeah. The, you, you say in the book that you were trying to figure out what was it? What was this overarching, almost political tent into which all these various people, you know, the, the, the yoga teachers, the soccer moms the really crazy right, the, re- the religious right, the, all that sort of stuff. And you come up with this expression, diagonalism. Mm-hmm. Explain that to me, because I'd never heard that before. So diagonalism is not my term. It's a term um, that was coined by uh, a couple of uh, a scholars of European politics, William Callison and Quinn Slobidian. They studied what was going on in Germany during the... the Germany had big anti-lockdown protests early on, and... The German word 
um, roughly translates as diagonal thinking or outside-the-box thinking. I think it's Claire Duncan. I'm mispronouncing it. Um, but it is the, the way they define diagonalism is this is is the mix and match of a, um, extreme suspicion of any uh, establishment institutions, um, a belief that all power is conspiracy, um, elements of whole holism and appeals to the natural and the new age, um, uh, entrepreneurialism. Uh, um, you know, they talk about a, a, a mon I think the phrase is that it's a monetizable, monetizable right. disaster. Um, and they say that though it has these elements of the sort of greenish new age left that do sometimes cross over in this diagonal line, it reliably arcs to the right. Right. Um, and that's a very important point, that, 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 that it's not like sometimes it goes left and sometimes it goes right. I'm still waiting for anyone to come up with a single example of it going left. It seems to go very reliably, maybe starting with some left-ish concerns, but it seems to always end in anti-immigration, transphobia, banning books about um, the true history of our nations. Um, and, yeah. I mean, it's funny, when, you, when, you, when you're talking there, I'm thinking, I mean, I know he's in the news at the moment, it's kind of Russell Brand territory. You know that that idea of that idea of entrepreneurialism against the big state, against vaccines, but also very much into physical health and all that sort of stuff. So these these characters have emerged, enabled by smartphones and communications, but they're tapping into something that isn't going away. Well, I think they're tap like they're tapping into, yeah. I think they're tapping into a couple of things. One we talked about already, which is that that this system isn't working for most people, um, and we don't do real economic education. And I don't. I mean, we don't in North America don't teach people about capitalism in high school, except to tell them it's about like sunshine and rainbows and Big Macs and the meritocracy. And so then, when you can't afford your grocery bills, even though you're working three jobs and you can't afford rent and you're never going to own a house. And all the all the promises are breaking. You're very vulnerable to somebody who says, "Oh, it's all Bill Gates and Fauci and Klaus Schwab." And if we could just, you know, bring them up on war crimes trials, that everything would be fine, and we'd have great capitalism again, right? Because it is it, it it's and that is why, even though it adopts the language of anti quote unquote elitism. It is very much an elite project. Yes. Um, it's a system-protecting project. It's about restoring some, you know, benevolent capitalism, nation-state, family, um, you know, which is, you know, is referring to as toxic nostalgia. But what I'm saying, I think a couple things is going on. I also think there is that, that when you're talking about a figure like Brand, he also is tapping into a desire for a more holistic worldview, um, you know, a coming together of, um, you know, sort of head and heart. I, you know, I think, yeah. I think, I think people feel a, a severing that is real. I feel it, you know, I feel like I, most left politics doesn't really know how to speak to the, the, the sort of spiritual core of, 
of, of what is being lost in the climate crisis, for instance, or of a need for something larger than oneself. Um, and, 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 you know, these are guru figures. This yeah, is, I think, absolutely. what's important. Yeah. Is It's not just the technology. It's that people want... These are people who very much want to not be a political leader, but be a guru. They want to occupy that that space. Um, and that's, you know, alarm bells, I think, should go off immediately whenever anybody wants to be your guru. <laughs> I think that's a general rule. That's absolutely true. Yeah. Let's go back to the other Naomi for a second. Uh, she is very useful in this movement. Mm-hmm. And is, is her very conversion the act that's very useful. So that the more people who were on the liberal left or mm-hmm. the, the liberal mm-hmm. side, I mean, you're talking to somebody who, you know, Germaine Greer said, you know, the beauty myth was one of the most important books of feminism since the Second World War. I mean, this is... She this actually is, said since my book. Oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. Since there you Germaine go. Greer's book. Okay. Did she say that? Yes, yeah, she did. Well, that's... that's <laughs> You can't, you can't take that against her, because the female eunuch was pretty good. good yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but I'm going back to this idea of people being co-opted, used, you know, this idea that the, the useful idiot, you know, they're very useful for a movement. Do you think that's where Naomi Wolf's currency is? Yeah, I think, I think there's two roles that she's playing. One is, and she is very useful, and and you know, I have a section in the book about what she's getting out of this alliance and what they are getting out of her. Yeah. And I think what she's getting out of it is not that interesting. You know, she was sort of discredited um, from her 2019 book. People might remember she did this catastrophic interview on BBC where it was found that she had made these foundational errors in a book. It was like every writer's worst nightmare. The book got pulped. She wasn't going to get be getting another book contract from a, you know, a mainstream publisher. And so that was, I think that was a personal disaster for her. Yeah. And, and it was horrible to watch. It was horrible to watch all the kind of mockery that followed. I should know because a lot of people think I made those foundational errors. <laughs> so you, you got it. PVC, so <laughs> I, I literally have a lot of empathy. Um, but, but so I think she, she, she need, she's, she's getting everything she had and more. Um, you know, there's, a, there's something of a sense in sort of polite liberal circles when somebody is no longer in, you know, the pages of the newspapers that we read or even on our social, you know, like network platforms, that they no longer exist on planet Earth. Um, And she actually has a much larger platform than she's had at any point since the 90s with Bannon and Carlson and and these parallel mirror world uh, platforms that she's very good on, um, including Getter and I think Rumble. <clears throat> so what, what are they getting out of her is what you're, you're yeah. asking. And I think this claim around diagonalism, right, the centerpiece of it is that it's a new politics, right, that, that, they're, that they, this is not the old Republican Party. It is not the old fascist, you know, Mussolini party. There is yep. something new and special and progressive and post-partisan going on. And that's why it is very important to have a few of these you know, people who, who I call crossover stars because they are the ones who make it look like something new, right? If it weren't for the Wolfs and the Brands and, you know, uh, I mean, fill in your blanks, um, yep. then it would just be the same old MAGA uh, proposition. So it matters. It matters that there were yoga um, 
uh, sessions at the trucker convoy uh, in 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 Ottawa. Were they? And, and, yeah, sure. That's quite. Yeah. <laughs> um, so. I don't know if there was any of that at the at the with I the gallows. I saw the, 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 the doll. I didn't see I didn't see yoga mats now last Tuesday night outside the doll. Don't doll, be surprised. They'll be there next time. <laughs> um, they'll be like Kundalini gallows. Um, <laughs> I love it. I love the image. Downward dog is a thing. Anyway, <laughs> um, but so but the other thing is actually more tangible than that, which is which is she's she. I think she represents. A, a portion of women voters who had not gone this route in previous elections. Um, you know, a lot of men went sort of MAGA yeah. right in the U.S., but this is not just a U.S. thing. This is true for a lot of conservative parties. They have trouble with women voters. The men tend to be more conservative than women. And somebody like Bannon, who is a real strategist, understands that there were some angry women during COVID, angry about school closures, angry about max, masks, vaccines. He calls them the warrior moms. And, and, and he, he, he says that, that Wolf was, was what, top of his list for woman of the year because all these moms listened to her. This is a quote. Um, so I sort of said that she's a little bit like the kind of like Karen in chief for Bannon, like yes. she wants to, <laughs> she wants to speak to the manager on everyone's behalf about all the things. Um, and um, but that also, I think, relates to some of what is driving this. Like I think you know, it, there, this is a disproportionately white movement, um, and 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 it and and white women are very involved in leading it. And I think part of it has to do with the sense from some women who. You know, we're part of that the third wave and second wave of feminism who are unsure of whether or not they have a place in mm -hmm. the new politics. And there's this kind of wild co-optation that goes on of like claiming that vaccines and mask mandates are like apartheid. They're like Jim Crow. They're like slavery. They're like genocide. It's like, what else are they like? They're yeah. like all the crime. They're the Holocaust. They pulled out they're, Nazism they're, too. They're, sure. Of and course they pulled out Nazism. They, of course they wear the yellow stars and, you know, and it's just this like really over the top kind of appropriation and cosplaying. And it's clear that there's something going on. That, that section of the book is called, I too am a victim, the biggest victim. Um, so it's worth worth unpacking, um, because then the flip is you appropriate the slogans of a racial justice movement. So like, you know, they'll say like there are signs that say "I can't breathe" about a mask, which is you know just a few months after people are shouting "I can't breathe" in the streets about the uh, murder of George Floyd. Um, so. But then they're also electing politicians who are banning books about civil rights history yep. and making it illegal in Florida to teach, you know, about about, about the truth of uh, racial oppression in the United States. So it's a it's it's a double move. It's appropriation and also an attempt to actually kind of stamp out the original. Um, it's it's something we need to understand. I think about about and and I think the other thing is. You know, it's funny to talk about the, the appropriations in some ways because uh, they're so over the top, but they're part of an apocalyptic language, an apocalyptic absolutely. discourse. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's, I think, really important to distinguish between what some of the leaders may or may not think, we have no idea, and 
what the people who are listening to them believe. And I think they believe them. And this is where, I, where it tips into political violence um, again and again. And, you know, whether it's the January 6th storming of the Capitol, which was, um, you know, based on a conspiracy that, that, that the election had been stolen. It was not stolen, but people believed that, 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 that false claim. Um, and, you know, that's just one example of the way these conspiracies, like all these men who are going into uh, grocery stores and schools and talking about the great replacement theory, right? Um, white men with guns who believe that they are being replaced by their, that there is a plot to replace white people with immigrants. Um, you know, that that is... Though the, these theories lead to real-world violence. Well, well absolutely. Yeah. I mean, because what we're talking about is old-fashioned propaganda. We've seen it before, again and again. Typically, it's centralised in the state or it's centralised in a party, but here it's absolutely disparate. But it's it's changing people's worldview. I mean, you've said in the book, one of the quotes was like, attention is the most valuable commodity in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And attention is up for grabs. And these guys are grabbing it. And this is where I think the centre, the left, wherever you, wherever you decide to locate yourself, doesn't seem to have quite grasped that it's attention. Mm-hmm. And that's what Bannon's very good at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, sometimes... On the left, we just think, well, we need a better bo- podcast, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and I know that feeling. I don't, I don't think that that is going to cut it because I think the reason why their podcasts can be as sensational as they are and grab the amount of attention that they do is because they're willing to make up facts and yeah. they're willing to bring people along in these, on these like Hollywood scripts and a part of the script is that there's going to be justice, right? It, the, the part of the story, that's why they show up with gallows. Like they are, the, the story is not just that you're against these things, it's that you are going to arrest these people and there's going to be justice. In the QAnon story, it's a great storm. There's white hats and black hats. And um, it's, you know, it's it's a big part of the kind of mythology around Trump. Trump is going to come in and he's going to bring in the storm. Yes. But it is not just about you know, speaking truth to power. No, no, <laughs> like it no. Is, it no. is a, a story of, of, of retribution and it's justice. It's almost kind of biblical. It's like day of reckoning yeah, sort of yeah, stuff, you very, know, like very God much, will come and much, smoke yeah. you down. Yeah. And so I think that this is not going to be one just in the realm of, of words. I think, yes. th- and th- that's why I'm saying that somebody like this, like, like a really fiery labor leader who is on all the television screens because he's actually organizing a disruptive strike saying, you know, these bosses have enriched themselves wildly, had their most profitable years, and we haven't even kept up with cost of living. Like, it's the combination of speech and action that we have to go for because I don't think we should sever our ties with recognizable reality and just make things up, right? Or or just show up our own gallows. White lies. so I think it's going to be the promise of a real change that will that will put this sort of fantasy world, hopefully, in in some kind of perspective. There will always be people, yeah. hucksters who are trying to sell this. The, all we can do is take away some of their customers. Yeah, exactly. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. But let's focus on So we're going into this next November, 12 months, is the American election. Mm. It's very close. Mm. Uh, your man with the big yellow face is miles ahead in the Republican yeah. polls. Miles, like, you know. Let's talk about the next 12 months in politics, in real-world politics, against the background of all this noise, the doppelgangers, the propaganda, you know, because there will be any number of issues now over the next couple of months that will come hard and fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's your sense of, of the next? I know, I know you're you're in Vancouver, so you're slightly over the border, right? But what's your I, sense? I always think it's a good good vantage point to watch American politics <laughs> yeah. from. Uh, I. Uh, I did live in the States for a few years and it was fun while Bernie was running to be able to really throw in for him. But now I like... I, I want to come back and talk to you about Bernie in a sec, but the, the yeah. next the next uh, 12 months. You know, I think that, that we're starting to see a return of collective organizing. There's a lot of... There's, I think people are have been trying to make sense of how you go from these high highs of, you know, think about the the student climate strikes of 2019, mass millions of people in the streets around the world. And we, the Bernie campaign, we thought we were going to win. You know, we really, like, we won a lot of states and we sort of had the wind at our backs. And then the, the sort of closing down of the ranks around Biden coincided precisely with the lockdown. So that was part of what went wrong with the left, I think, is that we were not able to, you know, for for good reasons, like just actually come together and strategize. And there's only so much you can do in a Zoom call. Um, And so, and then we really needed to get rid of Trump. So people just kind of put their heads down, you know, got Trump out of the White House and then then kind of crashed. Yeah. Um, But... 
But what I see happening on the American left is trying to figure out like how, like how you can win the argument and lose these wars, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and part of it is that the institutions of the left have been very weak. So you have these kind of flash mobs, right, where suddenly you have unprecedented numbers of people on the streets, but there aren't the democratic institutions to support those movements. And so then when there starts to be tension and infighting, um, they just kind of fall apart because there isn't a way to hold people accountable and maybe change leadership or anything like that. And instead it just turns into recrimination um, on these platforms. Mm -hmm. So I do see that people are trying to build some new and some sturdier institutions. There's a lot of work going on around uh, tenant organizing, a lot of work going on around debtor or de- debtor organizing, and a lot of really interesting labor organizing, not just the auto workers, but you know the Starbucks workers and Amazon workers. So I I would just say that that you know about Biden that he does know he needs to have something to offer, which is why he you know has has belatedly been been trying to get a few signature. Uh, policies through, like he just passed a, a, um, a climate a, a, a climate core, so which is based on the civil, the New Deal era civilian conservation core. So it's a project to get a lot of young people out um, in doing green jobs and things like that. And it's, it was one of the one of the tenets of of the original Green New Deal idea. Yeah. So that's a sort of offer to young people. Um, what we're hoping is that in addition to walking the picket line with the UAW, that he also um, attaches, he, he has the power, he has executive authority to attach strings to the unfortunately named IRA, um, Inflation yes, Reduction yes. Act. It, it, um, it, it, has, it has struck me all the time. Talking to Americans, they talk about the IRA, <laughs> and I'm about to sing, ooh, off the raft, but you can't <laughs> sing that anymore. Well, the IRA If we got represents- Naomi Klein singing that, wouldn't that be a weird way to end the thing? <laughs> Well, it's it, it you know it represents um, you know something around three more than three hundred um, billion dollars worth of it of, of infrastructure investments, much of it green infrastructure. Um, you know, if those jobs were, had to be union jobs, it would be so significant to the labor movement. And so there's a push now to try to get Biden to to do that. That would be yeah. a big deal in terms of, you know, like it's not about optic. It's it's not no, like it's about, about stuff. It's about yeah. getting things done. Like I, he can get his picture taken, so can Trump. You know, that's not good enough anymore. Do, do you think that the, the center or the left can beat this incipient movement by playing by the rules? Um I mean what what do you mean by the rules? I mean, I think the left is always should be disruptive. I don't think we should play by the rules. Um, I don't, you know, I, th- I think we should be we should be nonviolent. Um, but I think we we need to disrupt business as, as usual. And I think we need you know we need mass movements to remember that that we are strong. I mean, this is what de- mass demonstrations do, and. We demonstrate to one another that we are not alone, that we have this um, latent power as 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 groups, as class, you know, and and so we need more of those moments, and we haven't had very many of them. I don't know if it's different here, um, but but I think we sort of, I think the isolation of the pandemic is somehow still with us, um, you know, and a lot of what I talk about in the book is that 
you know, what we're doing with our brands, with our reflections, with the sort of perfected self um, is you know, we're, 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 we're pitting ourselves against each other. Yep. We're trying, I think, in a really understandable way is to get an edge in this brutal economy um, by optimizing, performing, perfecting, and none of it is going to get us where we need to go. We, you know, we really need to loosen the grips on ourselves and sort of reach towards each other, which was really the joy of the Sanders campaign. It was that you know, amazing slogan, not me, us. And really, we really felt that on the campaign trail, you know, not just not Bernie us, which is how it sort of started, but eventually what it really was, was this kind of, you know, I call it a social justice spell where so many people are suffering privately, alone, feeling ashamed because they can't pay the bills, because they yeah. are carrying this debt. And it feels like this individual shameful crisis. But when you knock on doors and when you come together, you know, in halls and stadiums, that private um, shame becomes a collective power um, because, you know, as a group, as a class, you can refuse to pay, you can demand change. Um, and, you know, that's what is starting to be rebuilt. And it's really our only hope. And Biden is somebody who can be pushed and, you know, we got the best policies out of Biden when there was still more movement that was yeah, pushing absolutely. him. And then when people kind of collapsed into, you know, the, this, you know, period where a lot of there was a lot of um, fragmentation and recrimination, I think they kind of thought, well, maybe we can get away with doing less, you know, because they're corporate Democrats. They don't really want to do anything. Yeah. Um, and now they're getting close to the election. So they're going to do less. And they're like, okay. Okay, we, let's we, be all workers. All workers. Can yeah. I, before I go to the, the floor, you know, over the last 25 years, Naomi, you've always been at the vanguard of discussions and activism about climate change. Mm -hmm. and, and by the way, the book ends optimistically. The book ends, I think, optimistically. Mm -hmm. You talk about Red Vienna, you talk about all sorts of moments where people came together to change the world, to change their, their circumstances. You've written extensively about climate change. Do you think one of the big battles now is, is sort of populism versus net zero? That in the course of the next five or six years, the climate will become the issue where populism's populist galvanized. So if you listen to Marine Le Pen, so Marine Le Pen mm. is likely to be the next president of France. That we know. Uh, it's very, very hard to see anybody beating her at this stage. Oh, my God. Um, then you will have, so Maloney, Le Pen, in Italy and France. One of their issues is let's attack climate change because we think this is a weakness. Right. So... Um so, the, you know, we've talked about the, the attention economy yeah. and, you know, during COVID, the, 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 the attention economy was supercharged because there's never before been a global synchronous crisis like this that when we were all connected, right? So billions of people were able to be part of sort of the same conversation. So that meant that if you had the right combination of messages, you would catch a digital carpet ride, the likes of which have never been seen before. So when you look at something like, you know, the way Russell Brand's um, follower count increased, the more he 
you know, hit those talking yeah, points. Yeah, he ratcheted things up, yeah. But it, it was so fast. I mean, yeah. from b- below a million to seven million, you know. In, 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 in a number, yeah. yeah. Um, so th- right now we're in this very dangerous phase where that's money. Like, that is that is an economy. There's a whole economy around this. And it's like kind of like a heat-seeking missile right now where it's just like, where are we going to get the next... Um, like, where are we gonna? Where are we gonna get the next lift off? Where, where like, what is gonna provide us with the kind of juice yeah. that that we got? Now, nothing is gonna be like COVID because nothing is gonna be as globally synchronous as that. But they're looking for it. You know, yeah. Ukraine, um, tra- transphobia, climate. It seems climate. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. They're looking. Like, if you look, it's not gonna be one thing. It's gonna be a combination. But absolutely, this idea that the Davos elite is going to use climate to lock you in your homes to make you eat bugs. Um, and you're going to have to live in a 15-minute city, which actually means that you're not allowed to leave your house for more than 15 minutes. I mean, yeah. you just make up your own facts, right? Um, but it's, you know, it's... it's you know, Actually, the 15-minute city one was a really new one that came in. That was I was like, where is that coming from? Yeah. But it's a real It's not one. going anywhere, yeah. yeah. There's also, you are the carbon they want to remove. Have you yes. heard this one? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, I'm going to say that to my kids. <laughs> um, Tonight. So, I mean, I think it's important to understand, like, that, that there are real economic reasons why they're looking for something, yeah. and political reasons, because that was, you know, that was a, this was a period of, ex, of, of very effective political organizing for the right. And then people start to get bored, and there are no more mask and vaccine mandates, so they're like, what are we going to do now? Um, and that's what they're looking for. And that's why they latch on to something like a boring city council debate about parking. And they decide yeah. that's tyranny. We have to go stop that. Yeah. Um, so I think as I, I feel like it's, you know, I'm a broken record about climate. But I've been Enough. saying this for a long time. But if the climate policies that are on offer are elite climate policies that, in, that pass on the bill to working people who are now even more, or vastly more overburdened than the last time I said yep. this in Dublin, you know, in, in, in 2019, 19, yeah. 2014, 2012, <laughs> no, this, this is the vision of, of a Green New Deal. It is, you know, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said when she first introduced the resolution, we fight poverty and climate change at the same time. It is possible, eminently possible, to design climate policies so that they are redistributive. Um, you know, you can make the subway free. Um, you can pay yep. to insulate people's homes. You can buy the heat pumps for them. Um, unfortunately, the climate policies that we have tended to get from neoliberal politicians are ones that if they do not directly pass the costs on to working people while letting billionaire oil companies off the hook entirely, um, at least can be made to seem so, right? So yeah. like, you know, the, the fights that are going on at, like in the UK right now over, over the ultra low emission zones. I mean, oh, there's a lot of distortion going on in the way the right are char- characterizing them. But the problem is it takes three sentences to explain why I can get the scrappage fees and it's not that car, or there's only that car. And they can just be like, they're going to take your car away because you're poor and they're rich, right? Yeah. And so if, like, if we do not understand that we need to fight inequality, injustice, and climate change at the same time, we will lose again and again and again. And whatever little gains we've won, we will we, we'll be beat back by the forces that I'm uh, describing. 
Because, no, I mean, what's, what's amazing, uh, I've been watching German, the alternative for Deutschland, and, and, and this, is, this is a party that's very radical, and very nasty. Mm-hmm. And it's all about the cost of your boiler. It's exactly this. Yeah. The entire thing has yeah. come down to how you're going to, who's going to pay for climate change. Just before we go. And but I, this before, is, I mean, this is, you know, I was saying before, like they have a vision for just, they have a vision of a kind of a justice, right? The great storm, we're going to arrest them. We should, we should really, I think, throw in on Subig oil, um, getting, getting the oil companies, you know, to pay for the transition. Um, you know, we, we've got some bad guys. We should go after them. And it's not that, you know, I don't, I mean, I, we could bring them up on war crimes trials. I don't think we have to. I think we could just take their money. I'm satisfied with that. Um, <laughs> but like some real populists, yeah. you know? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Naomi Klein. Hi, I'm Dori Shafrier. And I'm Kate Spencer. And we are the hosts of Forever 35. And today we're talking about Club Med, the best all-inclusive getaway for families. Today, Club Med has nearly 70 resorts worldwide, from beachside resorts in the Caribbean and Mexico, to magical locations in the Maldives and Morocco, to ski resorts in the mountains from Canada to the Alps. Between their all-inclusive family programming, wellness offerings, land and water sports, and their French heritage-inspired food and drink offerings, Club Med is the best way to elevate your family getaway, no matter which location you're at. To learn more, visit clubmed.us. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.